Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 123, and today we're discussing social media and how it fits in with your WordPress site and your WordPress business. Uh, we've got a great panel today, and before we get started, I'd just like to remind you, uh, WP Tonic is not only a podcast, but it's a uh, concierge uh, maintenance service for WordPress, so if you're a WordPress designer or developer and you're raising your rates and you want to transition your legacy clients and you want to hand them off to somebody, leave them in capable hands. Uh, do consider WP Tonic as an option. Okay, and with that, I would like to have our panel introduce ourselves themselves. Uh, we'll go uh, Kim, Sally, Jackie for discussion. Uh, Kim, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Kim Schivler. I teach people how to build WordPress websites and focus on building online courses with them, teaching them to, from content creation through marketing. And I'm so excited. If for anyone in the LA area, I'll be speaking next weekend at WordCamp LAX. I hope to meet you in real life there. Awesome. Sally? Hi, my name is Sally Getch. Uh, my business is WPFangirl.com. I will also be speaking at WordCamp uh, Los Angeles, and I only hope not to disgrace myself by being unprepared. Jackie? Hi, I'm Jackie D'Elia. Uh, I run a WordPress consultancy. I help clients build and promote their digital brand, and primarily through content strategy, web design, and development. Very good. And I'm John Locke. I run a WordPress consultancy here in Sacramento called Lockdown Design, and the main focuses are uh, custom theme development, e-commerce, and uh, local SEO. And my co-host, Jonathan, is in the chat room. Uh, he's the founder of WP Tonic. Okay, and before we get into our main topic today, we had a couple news stories that uh, we're making the rounds this week. And the first one was uh, published on the WP Crowd. It was an article called uh, teaching you doesn't mean free development. Um, and, and the basic gist of the story was, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the WordPress community. We love to give. It's open source community. We love teaching people. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the requests just kind of go into the bound. They go over the boundary line, and they go into uh, just doing stuff for people. Um, Kim, you know, when you read this article, how did, what were your thoughts? How did, did you think like that sounds familiar or? Sounds highly familiar to me, uh, especially because I don't do development work for people anymore. I only do training and I give away lots and lots and lots of free training, but that is kind of also what I'm dependent on to, you know, training and support working people through things to actually make a living. So I can't afford to even just do all of the training free, much less actually go in and do it for them. And if we're going to walk through step by step how to do it, I'm going to show them they're going to do it. You know, I have I have a breaking point on how much of that I can give away and still have a business. And for those of you who do development, I, I can't even imagine because I don't touch their site at all. We might do it on a Zoom, but... But I don't want their passwords. I don't want to know. No, it's it's definitely. Uh, it, it, I found it's it's really hard to like draw the boundary line between like you're teaching and helping, and then it gets into like you're doing. Um, Sally, what are your experiences with that? Have you ever had like 
times where it crosses the line? Oh, you know, I have clients ask for things. The interesting thing is that he's writing this article as a meetup organizer. And what he's saying is that people keep coming up to him after the meetup and basically wanting free help with doing stuff for their clients that they're getting paid for and don't know how to do. Uh, I haven't had that experience with my meetup members. People will ask how to do things. And occasionally people, you know, it's the place where I have my meetup also runs a, a WordPress drop-in support group uh, twice a week. And people go there specifically to work on, you know, things. And they, you know, they pay some amount of money for uh, for that. Um, and usually, you know, if it's if it's something where it's not like you can just answer a question for someone, we kind of direct them to uh, to go there. But, you know, sometimes I've needed help with something for a client project. I got stuck on it. I put a request out to the to the meetup list and I generally offer to pay people if it's not like they can just point me to an article that I that I can look up. Uh, because, you know, if I expect to be paid for it, I don't know why they shouldn't expect to be paid for it. No, that's a, a, a great point. And, and like what you say, I've had this happen like here and there. You know, it's not like a whole bum rush of people coming up, like saying, do this for me. But to me, that is the boundary line when you're getting paid to do your client work and you're wanting me to jump in. And it's like if I, and it's like you said, if I can point them at something, that's great. Or if I can just tell them, like, use this plugin or do this or do that. But when it comes when it gets like really super involved that's when it starts kind of feeling like I'm consulting you instead of, mm -hmm. and there should be some money exchanging hands because you're getting paid. Right. I, I have a, one of my, uh, one of the people who comes regularly to my meetup, who's a, a quite experienced uh, developer has a rule. Basically, if I can do this favor for you within five minutes and complete it, you know, I will, I will do it for you for free. A after that, you know, if it's more complicated than that, I'm charging you for the consulting time. I like uh, that. I, I really like that. That's probably the line I need to draw because I have that same situation. And I have to admit, it irritates me more when it's a developer that's one of my quote clients who I know is getting paid from the other person. And then they're just continuing to come back to me, continuing to come back to me. And the other day I had written out, I think it took me 25 minutes to write out this email explaining to the developer where no, a membership plugin doesn't do that. If your landing page is membership, completely different, explaining it all out and then thinking to my, and that's on me, like, you idiot. No, this is where you send back and go, I can help you with that, but this is what it's going to cost. And then the other one that I just ran into recently along those lines were um, a company that had not paid the level of developer they should have, like you guys. <laughs> So oh, thank you. <laughs> they had someone who honestly didn't know how to do something. My basic students, I teach. And they called me and they were in a panic. And I went over it with them. And so it's the same thing. You hired a cheap developer who didn't know what they were doing. And now you want me to show them how to do it without any type of monetary compensation because you didn't hire the right developer. That one kind of t tweaks me a little too. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I can't say that I'm immune to having gotten in trouble with that before because sometimes you don't see it coming. Uh, Jackie, have you ever had experiences like that where there was a definite boundary line and you felt yourself like getting sucked into that like bad side of the line where you're just doing stuff for free and it's like, hmm, wait a minute, I should be getting paid for this. I've 
had that happen on Studio Press Community Support Forum I, when I was offering support there and answering questions. Sometimes you'll cross the line where you'll realize that you're you're helping somebody who's a developer, they've got a client, and you're crossing that line where they're actually wanting you to troubleshoot that problem for them and help them resolve it more so than just kind of pointing them in the in that direction. And I know when I first started off, I mean, I spent a lot of time on lynda.com and Treehouse and really digging in and trying to learn as much as I could on my own. I didn't go to a lot of support forums, although I found answers to questions on support forums where, you know, re through reading other posts, I wasn't actively asking somebody to help me solve a client problem that I was working on. And I think that's, and, and, and Roy had some nice um, examples in there of questions that were positive questions that you can ask in such a way that's gonna elicit somebody to wanna help you out and teach you versus ones that are just gonna be red flags to everybody. So go read that article um, because it'll be helpful. If you're just starting off and you wanna know kind of how, how to talk with other folks about who can give you advice and help. There were some really good pointers in there in that article. Yeah. And I, you know, it's frequently enough that, that I have people at the, at the meetup ask, you know, where can we go to learn more about whatever or what, and, you know, and, and, and the, the developer types are usually already aware that like, you know, yeah, on lynda.com or on treehouse or on one of these other things, there are courses for introductory this and that. Uh, and, uh, and they're usually willing to, to take them and, and the questions have tend to be more specific. Um, I think a lot of times, especially in, I can only speak for that Genesis form that I was in is there's a lot of people who just got started, just purchased a theme and is doing it for a client and really is just not prepared for that, for that job. I mean, Genesis by itself, when you first get it is, can be a oh little God. more challenging. It's like a, it's like a professional toolkit. You really, you, when you load it up and you get it, you're like, okay, this doesn't look anything like I thought I was going to get. And that's where all the panicking starts. Well, yeah, the first time I worked on a Genesis site for somebody, you know, I, I went to edit a page template and it all, all it said on it was Genesis. Genesis. Like, that's, uh, the moment, that's the moment you realize <laughs> I'm in a different playground here. Yes. Uh, no, I definitely. And, 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 uh, do you guys find that it's 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 not so much really like the people who like have their own sites like site owners it is more like when other developers who have like clients who are paying them in money that's where it's more of an like you know if you want me to help you beyond like a certain point if it gets complicated you know there it, are a lot of resources today though that weren't available even three four years ago that um, make it a lot easier to learn now there's so many places you can go to watch tutorials um, sign in whether it's paid or free ones that can really help um, help you improve your development skills no, without having to yeah, get I, I a specific to person to help clients asking me for free training i would you know i wish more clients would ask me for training at all clients tend to prefer to just ask you to do it for them and then it's it's pretty much a matter of of, of saying like okay here's what's included with building the site and here's what you need to pay like ongoing uh, maintenance uh, you know or or, or whatever for no, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's got to be an equitable exchange of value. Um, well, and I think it's with what Jackie was saying, you know, there is so much more free out there as far as tutorials and, and low cost training. 
what happens, what I find happens is kind of the same thing, Sally. By the time they get to calling me, it's something very specific. They've watched the training. There's something they didn't understand. It's very specific. And if you know that you've got, you know, they're going to turn around and charge somebody for this, then that's where you should be willing to pay to learn it. Because, you know, face it, you're going to pay once and keep building it for other clients. It's a good investment of your time. Right. You have to be willing to invest a little bit of money in yourself as a developer also and not just want to charge all your customers. Right. I mean, I, I remember when Sridhar Katakam started charging for his um, Genesis tutorial site. And, and I did not hesitate for a second to pay for that because it's like, wait, I have used these tutorials on client sites and been paid for the work I did. That, that is a no-brainer uh, to keep you know paying for, for access to that because it's going to be worth it to me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's an investment in yourself, an investment in your business, um, an investment in the community. So that help is there later on. Um, Which kind of leads us into that support license story. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, that's true. We can uh, discuss that. Are you guys down with that? Discussing? Sure. Okay. Uh, is a story by Russell Aaron. Uh, why you want to get WordPress su plugin support licenses? Uh, that was on um, the Maintain blog. Yeah, there were there were two good points in there. One is you know that you should pay for your support for, for the plugins and support that, and the other is is make sure. I think John, you you had a comment in there that was talking about. I did uh, making sure that uh, if you're a client, making sure that you have your own licenses, and that that can be challenging when you can't find your developer or um, the project's over and you don't even realize what licenses you're going to have to renew or what the schedule is. So I think that was very good advice there about making sure that uh, clients have their own licenses and are aware of what products they're using and uh, when the renewals will come up for those. Yeah, there was an article fairly similar to this on Delicious Brains a, a couple of months ago about, you know, basically why why the client should own the licenses unless it's a truly developer centric plugin, like WP Migrate DB Pro, which which is one of their plugins, because that's something that you know your your client is probably not going to use after you've finished building the site, but you as no. a developer are, are are going to use it. And there are some cases where. You know, I have a developer license for something like you know Gravity Forms, and uh, it, you know I'll, I'll I'll use mine on the uh, on the client site. But in most cases, especially if it's not a thing where uh, you know I've already decided to, to to buy a dev license for it, I want the client to to buy the license themselves. It's easier than my buying it and transferring it for them. I may have no need for that plugin outside of that particular client site. And then, you know, the renewal notices will go to them. It just, you know, it makes it, it, it makes the general, you know, day-to-day -day upkeep easier. But it also does provide them access and, and ownership. And, you know, it's their site. They ought to, to have ownership. And, uh, you know, you, you might figure that, well, you're going to be, you know, responsible if you choose not to work with this client and, and say, here are the things you'll, you'll now need uh, licenses for. But, you know, if you got hit by a bus, that, that wouldn't be in place. Yeah, definitely. Kim, do you, do you uh, do, what do you feel about that? Like clients should own their plug-in licenses or like, is that on the developer? And I agree with Sally. In fact, the hit by the bus was what I always used with my clients. Whenever we were building out the site, I put together a spreadsheet. This was what you need, and you need to buy this. You need to own this because what if I got hit by a bus tomorrow? You don't even know what these licenses are, where they are, how to buy them. 
you're completely lost and you don't, you know, one developer following another without good documentation itself is a nightmare. So I, I was, I'm absolutely with you. I think that the clients need to offer it. I think, you know, I get the concept of the dev licenses and, you know, so many of these companies, they make it so much easier if you can do five sites or 10 sites or 25 sites. But that incremental cost is really better for the customer to just have it, own it, and, and it's theirs, not not the developer, not in the developer's hands. No, I agree. And, and that article really did remind me of some situations where I've run into uh, where y- you pick up a client and they're like, yeah, we have all our licenses, uh, you know, for whatever, WooCommerce. And then you go in there and they have maybe like six plugins or seven plugins on their site. But they only have a, one license like in their actual account. And uh, all the other people who have worked on it before, you have no idea. They can't get a hold of them. They've got the licenses, so they end up having to get them all over again just so that they have ownership of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we got time for one more story, and uh, that would be uh, on the WordPress uh, track, like in, in the theme repo, there's uh, a ticket open uh, concerning like the Xerif Lite theme, which is one of the most popular themes in the free theme repo. But um, it brings up a bigger issue. Uh, it looks like there's some things that they need to do to be compliant with the current uh, theme guidelines. And uh, they're kind of, let's just say like, they, they've kind of drugged their feet a little bit on getting compliant. Um, Kim, do you see... You know, why would uh, theme authors do this in the in the theme repo? Is this a way to kind of like promote their business or, or, you know, is this a rampant problem? I, from what I've seen, I think that the repository is doing a better job of, of closing it down. I would say a few years ago, it was a much worse problem. It was almost, I, we can't say it's as bad as theme forest shipping visual composer and everything else in there, but it was pretty bad as far as things that were being built into themes that really shouldn't have. I think they've done a good job in the repository or a better job of that, but we still have some of these holdouts. They're doing a great job, I think, with the new themes. We still have some of these holdouts that are still doing this because, face it, it kind of makes their theme look better when it's in the repository. That's why they want to do it because they're already popular. And it's not, you know, the I'm not a theme developer, so I don't have a skin in the game here. But the theme developers are, are crying foul. This is not fair. You know, we are having to follow these guidelines. These guys aren't. They've had a long time to fix it, and they're, you know, they just haven't done it. No, and I can see that where it, if you're trying to be up and coming and you see other people, like, kind of, getting breaks that they shouldn't be getting or meaning like they're, you know, bending the rules and sometimes like just out and out, just ignoring the rules that, that kind of makes you feel like, Hey man, like I, you know, they should be following the stuff if I have to, what are your feelings on this, Sally? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally understand why the people who've had to, you know, to, to meet those standards to, to submit new themes are, are upset that some of the ones that, that, got into the repo before those requirements were there, you know, haven't had to, to change. Um, and, uh, you know, having having read through the, the list, it was like, so part of the problem with Xeroflight, for people who aren't familiar with it, is that it includes a lot of uh, custom widgets that are, that are basically sort of 
uh, you know, pseudo custom post types built in. And, you know, the, the decision was made some time ago that, you know, custom post types belong in plugins. Uh, you know, that if, if you create them for, for a, a client's theme, you should build a plugin that, that creates them more, uh, you know, and, and so, uh, but they had them built in, uh, which is something a lot of theme forest themes have, uh, it, it, you know, additionally, and their argument is, look, you know, we've got all these current users of this theme and they use those things. And what happens to them if we change, you know, and make a, a plugin or multiple uh, plugins, uh, that, you know, that put these widgets in, how do we, how do we transition that? How do we, you know, and, and there were some suggestions for kind of automating things that they said, uh, you know, that the, the WordPress uh, community, you know, that the, the theme reviewers said, no, you can't do it that way. You know, you can, you can set up like a one-time database uh, import changeover, you know, and, a, and a, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's, yeah, I think, there are maybe some some actual practical difficulties in this case, but there also just seems to be some resistance and some disputes about well, the principle of of what's plug-in territory is is great, but the actual users, you know, may find it easier if it's if it's built in the theme. No, I agree, um, and and that is something a great point that you bring up. A lot of the theme force themes that you see they have custom post types built in. That means that the data is not portable. And I think that if themes are in the .org repo, like free themes, that data needs to be portable or, you know, they need to, you know, put those custom post types in a plugin. Uh, what are your feelings on uh, themes that kind of like bend the rules like this, Jackie? Well, I think they definitely need to change um, their theme so that it does comply. And it looks like they've been given quite a bit of time to do that. And I think the the other point is, you know, you're getting free access in the repo. You're not paying to be there. So I think that it's not, um, you know, it's not onerous on them to ask them to make those changes. And if they've had like 15 months, I think Sally was saying earlier that, you know, it was like 15 months that they've had to make these changes. I think you have to have a policy and a, and a set guidelines and enforce those then. I, I don't think you can make special cases for, for individual ones, especially just based on popularity or something, because that isn't fair to the other folks that, um, you know, the repo should be fair and open for everybody to be in. It, no one's paying to be in, it should be fair and open. And I think that when you're allowing somebody to continue that, when it's not a best practice, and uh, you're not, uh, you don't have an adequate time frame to roll that off, then that's really not being open and fair with everybody. So I, I think they're doing the right thing and I think they should um, either comply or have to be removed from the repo. Yeah, and I agree. I do see the technical challenges of like uh, porting over any existing data, but you have to follow the rules if, if you're in the theme repo. And, and I think a lot of people do try and get in the theme repo as a way to promote their you know, premium business. I think it's that's kind of like the gateway that they try and use. Do they um, update these plugins then? Is that do they have do they have updates for these plugins? And that's where the issue is in um, in com uh, backwards compatibility for customers who already downloaded and is using that theme. It looks like a whole laundry list of stuff, actually. Yeah, I mean, there there seems to be a bunch of different issues, but a, but a, but a big one is that these these custom widgets, sort of pseudo post types, are built into the theme, and they and they haven't created a 
plugin for it. So it's not like the we've bundled a plugin in and, and you can't update it. It's that we should have put this stuff in a plugin right. in the first place and it's not. But I wonder, are existing customers having are downloading new updates of the theme? So that would, you know, you could leave the existing folks on the theme with the the custom post types built in and then just start publishing newer versions of that theme that require a plugin that you offer. And, right. You know, I, I suppose it's because of the way automatic yeah. updates work. That must be what it is then. Unsuspectingly update and say, where the heck is all my content? And yeah. in this case, they actually have created a plugin. So one of the issues with this case is they had a built-in contact form. They have created a plugin and they have on there that this is the plugin that's recommended, but they haven't pulled the rest from the code. So it's a duality. And that was a part of the big comment was, you know, look, okay, you have created the plugin. Now it's time to pull that other piece out and give people give your people a time frame to force them to move to the plugin and not the other. Their argument is, well, our people like it this way. Well, that's nice, but it doesn't adhere to the rules. And I just want to point out the rules really, this is not a case where it's just some developers within the WordPress community being picky. If you logistically development-wise look at what plugins should be and what themes should be, it makes sense in the structure that they've laid out. You know, it's not just pissiness. It's it, not it an arbitrary sense. rule. Right. You should be able to switch themes and still have access to your data, it, it, especially if you're downloading themes from the repo. I mean, yeah. And, you know, if they really don't want to change it, they can take it out of the repo. There are, there are people who decided to, that, you know, no, they didn't want to change X or Y theme or plugin to, to you know, to be compliant because they thought that there, it would take too much away from, from that. Uh, and so they just don't have it in the repo. And, you know, you, you're not forced to, to put anything in, into the repo. Yeah. I think there's a lot of technical challenges because they have 200,000 uh, active users of this theme. And I think that what, uh, the, the bottom line is I think they're fearing the backlash of people saying like, this is broken now, like when they do change it. Right. A, a massive support. Load it's going to be massive. Yeah. That's really what they're fearing. Anyway, we're going to go uh, to our first break and then we're going to come back with our main topic, which is uh you know, integrating social media and how you use social media uh, in your WordPress site and your WordPress business back after the break. Buying or selling a home in the greater Reno Tahoe area? I know the best CRS real estate broker, and that's Karen Conrad. And you can find her at karenconrad.com or call directly at 775-527-7021. We're coming back from our break and we're discussing our main topic, uh, using social media uh, in your WordPress business and on your WordPress site. And uh, I want to start by asking Kim, uh, you know, how does social media lead to sales, you know, for businesses? Uh, what exactly is the return on investment of, of having social media and being active there? I'm probably not as active as I need to be. Honestly, I'm really bad with consistency, especially on my Facebook pages. But I have been finding that with Twitter, uh, I get, it's not, you know, one-to-one -one that everybody who's a follower buys something, but I've been getting more shares, which has been bringing me more opt-ins, which has then been leading to somebody engaging and, and kind of coming down that sales funnel. 
so that's been good. I had some people posting some things that, you know, kind of became almost like a testimonial that they had tweeted out about some things I helped them with. And that brought me people. And then I also do, I've mentioned it before on here, I use Twitter cards in my marketing. And that helps. I, I have a lead generation Twitter card where people can actually join my email list right from my Twitter feed. And they don't actually have to come over and enter it on my website. They click there. It says this person, you're giving this person your information. They click a button. They stay on Twitter and I get their email and then they get the follow-up series. So that's been actually kind of helpful for me. I, um, I'm going to do a plug here. I actually wrote a detailed article on how to do that uh, and posted it on my site last week because I was getting well, that's a That's good because then we don't have to pester you to teach us for free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's there for free. I am teaching you for free. <laughs> but so not one at a time. And uh, I do have the Facebook pages and I post and I share. For me right now, Twitter's been the best. People have told me now that I've got the podcast that adding the interest uh, Pinterest and the Instagram for the podcast images can actually be very helpful. I'm going to be paying someone to do that. I'm not going to do it myself. So I'll, you'll have to check back with me and I'll let you know if that works. No, very interesting. Um, you know, definitely like the Twitter card idea, that is brilliant. And I see barely anyone utilizing that. So I think you're definitely ahead of the curve on that. Um, and in, I didn't even think about that, like really, but the podcast podcast artwork, like on Pinterest and Instagram, can really make a, a big difference. Uh, you know, Sally, uh, how has your time and presence on social media, you know, led to more revenue for you? Is is there a definite ROI to social media? Um, it has varied. I mean, a, a lot of what I use Twitter for is is following and talking to you know other developers, which is it tends to be more a you know, a, a, in, in increase in my skill than an increase in in uh, in revenue, but it, it it varies. So, for instance, uh, somebody that I know a little bit through Twitter, but also through the fact that we both listen to the same, uh, have been listening to the same podcast for years and years and years, and and encountered each other within that community. Uh, you know, referred somebody to me who's who's turned out to be a, a really big client. Um, I also, uh, a few years ago, I used to participate in the LinkedIn uh, group for WordPress quite a lot. And uh, one of the editors from uh, O'Reilly found me there and uh, I ended up as technical reviewer on the WordPress, the missing manual book. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely has been a source. It's, it's not usually a source of, you know, direct clients because my client base is not necessarily hanging out in this, the same places on social media that I am, but it tends to be a, a source of, you know, referrals from colleagues and, uh, and others. And I do see, you know, I have uh, the tweet wheel uh, plugin installed on my uh, WP fangirl site and it, you know, periodically reposts old blog posts. And I see, I see that people share them. Uh, so, you know, folks who missed reading them the first time can, you know, will end up reading them, them later. And then I have had, I had somebody call me uh, a few days ago uh, because uh, he came across one of my blog articles on, on something. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I could not quantify it and I don't do anything in a, in a particularly structured way about it. 
but it has been a source of, of business for me. No, definitely. It's intriguing that you say, uh, you know, like LinkedIn WordPress group, uh, you know, led to you being a technical uh, advisor, like on the O'Reilly book. Um, you know, it, it was a time where I was like really involved in that too, but I've just completely like ignored it. Yeah, no, I haven't been involved with it recently, you know, yeah. very much at all. But, uh, it, you know, I, I used to be very active on LinkedIn. And, you know, I, I started to get less active on LinkedIn when they killed off the answers. I see, I see. And and then, you know, I got more into Twitter and then there was Slack. And, there's you know, there's only so many places I can be at a time. And, and if I'm working really hard on something, I'm spending almost no time on social media. Yeah, no, and I totally get that. Sometimes you do have to, there's only so much focus to go around in a day, for real, for real. Jackie, I mean, uh, you know, you're on Twitter, and I, I see you, and I see all the, you know, the panelists here on Twitter, and but that's kind of like where we hang out. You know, how does, have you seen social media lead to increased revenue for for you, or is there a definite ROI um, to having like a strong presence on social media in your experience? There's a couple of different ways that that's been a positive thing for me. You know, one is just the networking with people in our community has led to referrals for business. I, I agree with Sally and Kim that, you know, this is, this is very common. It happens. You get to know people over time. They know what areas of expertise you've got and you know theirs and you can refer people. I, I've got some people that I've met in the Twitter community where I know what their expertise is. And if I have a referral for something that's that's really better suited for them, that's an easy way for me to refer. So that definitely helps with, um, you know, increased business for everybody that's in that's in that group and the networking. The I think a lot of the the challenges are going to be is, you know, finding where your clients are hanging out and then making sure that you're participating there with things that would be of interest to them. You know, and I, you know, I'm have a duality about my, my purpose as well. You know, I enjoy writing tutorials and teaching techie stuff too. That may not necessarily be what my clients um, are looking for, although that does build authority for you. So I, I would, you know, say, you know, having it out there and having it where clients can see it is also a good thing for building authority. But I think you need to include, and you do this really well, John, I, I, you know, you have a good mix of blog posts that you share on social media that are targeted for clients, maybe who would be wanting to improve their business, uh, their website, their presence. And then you've got articles that also are building a network uh, within your community of the other developers, designers, and people that you work with. And I think a good mix of that does help you uh, build authority, build your brand, um, helps you attract clients if you go to the right places. Probably Facebook probably be one where maybe clients would hang out. And LinkedIn, too, I think would be another one where there would be professional folks that, um, that you might want to be working with um, on a website project, and they might see you on LinkedIn. And I definitely think you'd get a lot of credibility showing up there, especially if you chose to write some articles there or something. Uh, so social media, I'd like to, I'm on Twitter a lot. I like Twitter. It's, it's easy. There's other ones. I know you've mentioned, John, Snapchat as being something really popular. I haven't been on it to be able to comment on it. Facebook, I recently joined again. I hadn't been on Facebook in a long time. Um, it's not someplace I 
enjoy hanging out on. So I, I'd have to say, I know some people really do. And you have to do what, you know, you've got to participate on it if you want to get some benefit from it. So you can't just throw out your own post every once in a while and not interact and engage with other people. I like to share posts that I read that are interesting from colleagues that I know, from clients, from anybody, and share those for other people to say. So you have to be engaged in that. It has to be more than just you putting out your content and hoping others are going to share it and uh, you not participating in it. So for me, Facebook's probably not the best place for me to go because I'm not going there very much and I'm not getting actively engaged in it. But um, I like the idea of Pinterest and I like the idea of, um, you know, using the visuals to help um, aggregate information. Like a great thing for Pinterest would be your portfolios. I mean, to showcase some portfolios on Pinterest and that might be a great way to have clients find you um, through things that they like, things that they see on Pinterest that... Uh, are interesting for them. No, that's, that's definitely uh, a great idea. I do have like a portfolio thing on, on Pinterest, but like I haven't added anything to it in a while. I've really just kind of let Pinterest fall to the wayside. Uh, and it's interesting that you also mentioned like LinkedIn as Sally did, because I have seen, you know, certain businesses like only kind of hang out on LinkedIn as interesting as that is, they have almost, they, they seem to only like really hang out there and they do, there are businesses that like uh, see things on LinkedIn Pulse that they w don't necessarily see on Twitter or even Facebook. So I, I think that is definitely an avenue to explore. Um, you know, something, I'm, oh, go ahead. I, I would say I'm definitely an ad advocate of um, reposting some of your uh, blog content especially if you think it will appeal to that kind of wider, you know, less technical audience on LinkedIn uh, and on Medium. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I think that's a good idea. I definitely like, <laughs> and that's a great idea. Publish it on your own site first. So yeah, like, hey, it's copyright here first. And then, you know, repost it on Medium and, and LinkedIn Pulse. I think that's, you know, a fantastic idea. Um, something that you said, Jackie, that I want to ask the rest of the panel, you know, when it comes to content curation, uh, you know, Kim, like when you're curating, uh, you know, other people's content, does that help you, you know, with authority? I do see like people, you know, posting like other, um, people's content, like on Twitter and on Facebook, you know, maybe Facebook is more toward the clients. Twitter is more toward your colleagues, but you know, is how important is that to kind of get a mix in there and not just your own stuff? Well, I, I mean, I think it's critical. It's the, like they say, it's the 80-20 rule. You're supposed to share 80% right. of other people and 20% of your own. And I, my favorite thing is sharing because, frankly, I, you know, I shared your stuff this week and we went back and forth, John. Consistency in my own content is my own challenge and I'm really working on it. I don't okay. have enough content to share every day even if that was the rule. I like sharing other people's content and hearing other people's ideas and, and other people's images, et cetera. So they say that that's the rule, but for me, like with Jackie, it's just what is fun to do is to share and interact in that way as opposed to just, um, just pimping your own stuff. And then it's fun because you find, I'm sure you have this too, there are those people who no matter what you put out, they just share it. They embrace it. They share it. And you end up developing these very interesting uh, 
real relationships. And then for me, my favorite thing, you know, I'm, I'm old school still. My favorite thing is when I actually get to, to meet someone I know online and sit down with them in real life and have a coffee or a glass of wine or something like that and get to know them a little better. And I've had so many, so many Twitter, Twitter in particular experiences, a little bit of Facebook, but Twitter in particular where that's happened and it's just been really cool. No, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not well-traveled, but like when I do meet people in real life, it's it's very cool. Um, and I think a lot of those relationships are cultivated by sharing your content. And I want to know what you think about this, Sally, but I think for me, I, I guess I just realized this this minute, but the content that you, you know, the stuff that you share of other people's, you can you can write like your own stuff. You can make videos and write blog posts and share all that. But when you're sharing you know, somebody else's stuff, you're defining like what you believe in too, by what you choose to share. I, that also helps define like your brand and what you're about. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you, you know, uh, who do you share with and, you know, their stuff and, and how do you decide and, and what impact does that have like overall? Okay, so um, you know when I happen, if I happen to be looking at Twitter and I see something I like, I will I will definitely retweet it. But um, you know this podcast where I like everything I ever learned about social media, I learned from this podcast. It's called For Immediate Release, um, and what they did is they set up an account with uh, Gagalamp. Uh, you may not have heard of them, but what you do is you can prepare little you know links. To your content with little, you know, pre-entered, uh, uh, you know, intros for uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, uh, and then anybody who joins your gaggle uh, gets an email whenever there's new content to share. So, you know, I get the emails that come in, and I check to see, you know, is, 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 is was that a part of the podcast that I was interested in sharing? Yes. Okay. I click the share button. It's really easy. And some of the most liked and, and most spread on, uh, you know, things that I put out are, are things that have, have come from there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I would say definitely if you are, if you have something like a podcast or something where you, you really want to increase the amount of shares you get from your followers, you should look into that or, or something like that, that just makes it really easy for people to share your stuff. Because if it's, you know, if it's interesting and it doesn't take me very long to share it and, you know, and I might have missed seeing it on Twitter because I'm busy, I'm not looking at Twitter, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to share it. You know, there's a lot of really good stuff out there that I'm happy to, to spread around. No, definitely. And uh, I, I think that's it. Like, you know, there's definitely people that I will share pretty much anything that they put out because it's just the positive vibes that I have for them. Uh, you know, Jackie, how important is content curation, you know, in social media? It's very. And one other one other tip that I can share that I've started using more often now is when you are sharing somebody else's content, you know, first off, have a look at it and read it and see if it's something that you want to share. That'd be yeah. the first thing. The second would be rather than just retweet, like if you're on Twitter, 
do a quote and go ahead and put why you're wanting to share this. What's your reason? Why you think this is an excellent post to read or, you know, what's the main driver for you wanting to share it? Number one, that helps add to your own authority, but it also is going to make it more likely that somebody will want to click on the original post and go read it if they read a comment about it versus just a seeing a retweet of it. It's almost like when you see retweets, it's almost kind of spammy. I, when you first look at it, you see it. If you see something's just being retweeted and no one's commented on it. So that's one suggestion I would make. And I've been trying to do that as well as take the time to review what it is and also formulate some comment that um, kind of sums up why I'm sharing this and why I think it's important or why I think you should go read it or, or whatever. And I think that's really helpful. And you can do that on LinkedIn, especially when you're sharing articles on there. Um, I know you can do it on Facebook and everywhere else. And I think if you just take the time, a little bit of extra time, maybe just a minute or two to formulate that and do it, that can really help with the, um, add value to what's being shared. No, and I think that's a great insight. Uh, when you add a quote, you're kind of adding your own take on the article. And that really is kind of a callback to the blogging style, like say you see like on Daring Fireball um, or what Tim Smith does with the Bold Report where you're putting the link to the article and then you're kind of giving your own commentary on the article. So you're adding more to the conversation than just, you know, retweeting like the link. Uh, I think, you know, it's definitely like you can do that on Twitter, you know, uh, just in a smaller format. Um, I want to move forward. Like, Kim, um, you know, how do you see, like, a lot of, of businesses social, using social media? Um, you know, there's probably most businesses are on Facebook because they know that they should be. But how are they using it? And, and where do you see, like, opportunities for, like, a lot of businesses? Depending on the business, I see them spread out across the different ones on what fits for them. I think one of the big opportunities I see is for people, and this is something I've been working on, is don't try to do everything necessarily. Find out, like you said, where is your audience and focus on that while you build it up because there's so much out there you probably can't do everything that works. Uh, I, I know for myself, I'm doing some new things to try to, like where Sally was saying, make it easy for people. So I'm just implementing the click to tweet within my blog posts. So you give people some of those little zingers. Maybe they use them, maybe they don't. I haven't done my A-B testing yet. But from friends who use it, they say it really has helped them because they are, you know, it makes it easy. Um, so I think I think it just really depends on finding where your audience is, focusing on that, focus on not being all about you. I think that's the brands that are doing it wrong. It's all pushing me, me, me. This is not an advertising channel. Uh, and then the other thing that Jackie, you just brought it up and it made me so, so think of it is read what you're retweeting, read what you're sharing, know that it's something you like. There are some pundits out there who you know, for, for ease of use, because I realize this takes time, say, they say things like find someone you like, and then like automatically add them into your 
buffer feed or Hootsuite or whatever and automatically tweet their stuff out. And I just am like, no, because I don't care how much I like you. That is so dangerous. It's dangerous. You could write this you article. You may love what they say professionally and be totally opposed to them politically. And Yeah. And even professionally, you know, between the four of us, we've all had discussions here where there's a theme we like, a theme we don't, an idea we like, an idea we don't. And if you're then retweeting that and your audience is looking at it going, wait a second, she doesn't support that at all. I know her. Then it just is not in congruence with, with it's not congruent with what you think. No, absolutely. It is, it is very dangerous to just blindly, you know, tweet something out because somebody could come up with some, uh, you know, harebrained opinion, um, and now you're looking like, you know, you're associated with something you don't want to be associated with. And, uh, yeah. So uh, we're going to go ahead and go to our uh, final break. And then we're going to come back and talk more about social media and WordPress and how you use it for your business. Back after the break. Want to turn your WordPress website into an online speed machine? Go on over to WP Tonic. They'll set up DigitalOcean websites hosting on solid state drives. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for WP Tonic's maintenance packages. WP Tonic offers some of the very best WordPress maintenance packages on the market. So those who are serious about getting the very best platform for their WordPress sites, make sure you go on over to wp-tonic.com. And we're back from our break. And, uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, how businesses use social media and where the opportunities are. Uh, Sally, how, how do you see most businesses using it? And, you know, where are the real opportunities uh, that, that you see out there? Well, you know, a lot of my clients are not using it very much or, uh, you know, it's, I usually, when I'm setting up somebody's site, you know, I set up links to their social profiles. I, I probably include some form of, of a social sharing plugin, you know, preferably the, the more lightweight, the better, because those plugins can really slow down your site performance, depending on, on how they're set up to, to connect and, and pull things in. Uh, and in, in one case, you know, the client came back and said, I, I suppose we should actually like take off the links to my this account and my that account because I'm really not using them. It's like, yeah, that's probably true. You know, you don't want to send some send people to a, a place that you're not active. Um, you know, you don't want to show both a Twitter feed and a Facebook feed if you post exactly the same things to Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so, you know, it's it's social media is tough for businesses uh you know it's it's one more it's like blogging is tough for businesses you're trying to run a business and you have to do all this stuff in addition and unless you're a large enough company that you can hire somebody just to do that thing uh a lot of it is is going to suffer um and uh, uh so uh you know i think you need to if if you're a developer you need to kind of talk to your clients about how they use social media where they you know it's and, and this is not like what do you ideally think you'd like to do what are you actually doing on social media that we should incorporate into your site mm -hmm. now because if you start being active in another channel we can you know we can add that in um but if you're just saying oh i know i should x or or y um but you're not uh, then uh, you know you you don't want to 
you don't want to build that out for them and, and then just have it sit there em empty because it's embarrassing. Uh, you know, if you if if you simply are not active on a on a network and you don't show the network, people have no expectations. Right? Uh, that's a great point. Uh, it's better to just leave it. It's better to not even give the link to your Facebook page if you haven't posted on there in two years. Basically, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, Jackie, uh, I, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, Daphne Backman in the chat room says, most of the social media experts that I follow have said the same thing. Focus on the social media medium where your audience is and where you feel most comfortable. How do you feel about that? I think that's a good strategy. Um, I have uh, one client that's a large garden center, and they uh, post quite a bit on Facebook and on Pinterest. That's kind of where they go. Now, granted, a garden center is going to have a lot of visuals. So those are two awesome places to do that. And they've come up with a good recipe for um, talking about promotions versus talking about value add for somebody to learn something about a specific plant or a new way of doing something. And when you come up with that right mix where it's not just all promotional, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, there's a lot of large retailers that that is really all they know how to do. And I don't know if it's by design. It's certainly annoying uh, for me. So it's, it's definitely not helping me um, do business with them. But I think a lot of times, I think if you can find ways to show, to add value, um, say like, for example, you're in a garden center, right? And you got a new shipment or you got some new varieties of plants coming in versus rather than just taking a photo and showing a sale price or something, talk about why you're carrying this and, you know, what the benefits of it are or how easy it is to care for and some other things and leave the the selling part kind of off of those social media things. And then that help can drive business because your ultimate goal in doing that is number one, provide information, share it. And then ultimately, hopefully people will come to your location to make a purchase. And um, so you want to have like an educational hub where you're sharing information that's, that's adding value, enriching somebody's life. And I think when you find that right mix, that works out really well. And if you enjoy the platform that you're sharing on and you are actually if, if you're on Facebook a lot and you're going to be engaged and you're going to be able to respond back to people when they leave comments on your posts, you're going to get a much better return on that investment than if you tweet something and you never look on Twitter and you never respond to any of the comments or anything. It is a two-way street, social media, and you need to remember that if you're going to do it. It's not just a place to put stuff and hope um, that people will see it and and it's going to have some uh, benefit for you. I think it's a community. So you need to make sure that you're, you know, you've got somebody on board your company that is responding, checking and doing And If eight social media channels are too much for you, then pick two that you like and focus on those and just grow it from there. I think having two that you manage very well versus six that you manage poorly or average is a much better strategy to just have it two. No, that's a great point. Uh, you know, social media is there to, you know, add value. Uh, Kim, I want, you know, some something that, that Jackie just said, I want to kind of like play off of. Uh, a lot of people, I, I think that I see a lot of people use social media as like another version of an e-blast. They're just like, you know, throwing information out there, hoping something sticks, hoping that you go and, and whatever, do business with their brand. Uh, but they really miss the boat to educate people. 
and there's so many ways that they can do it. Um, you know, each channel, each kind of platform has like its own language, and there's so many different ways to teach people. You know, how what what are some ways that people could use different social platforms to to kind of like educate their customers and value add? Well, I think the education piece is critical because it is part of that community development. And it does depend on each piece, like you said. So Pinterest is fabulous for a beautiful picture that then can have great content. Like, I don't know about you guys, but if I do go and I see this beautiful plate of food and there's no recipe, what was the point for me? You know, I want to know how they did it or where they got it, something about it, some kind of context around it, not just a picture. I could go to, you know, Google Images for that. So it's knowing where your area is and how to share with them if it's a, maybe if it's a lifestyle blog or a lifestyle board, the, the picture might be food, but it would be about where it was and the enjoyment of the food, et cetera. And if it was more of a cooking one, it would be the actual recipe of how to create it. But knowing how you're laying it out, both for the social media itself, the platform, a la Pinterest, and the board you're building, a la lifestyle versus how to do cooking and making sure that whatever content you're creating fits and serves that audience. And then same true with right, Facebook. You have, particularly now with Facebook Live, we have a lot of other options for offering content that is relative and teaching to our audience through our live video. Twitter, well, Twitter, we've got to kind of keep it short. So that's where you can tie in images and linking to, you know, linking to other teaching content. I think that, I don't know about you guys, my biggest pet peeve with any of them is whichever one I'm on, engage me in that arena. When I get the direct message from Twitter, come see me on Facebook, I'm just like, no. <laughs> you know, not that I won't find you on Facebook in the future. But we've met on Twitter, and the first engagement you give me is come see me on Facebook. Like, engage with me a little bit here first. I'm not leaving the bar with you. I don't know you that well yet. That's the way it kind of feels for, for me. It's right. almost like a weird pickup line from, you know, like when we were in our 20s. And, and then you get to Facebook, and they're like, come find me on Instagram. And it's just like a never-ending <laughs> circle. <laughs> Exactly. But I wanted to ask you guys a question on this. Is uh, Sally, you mentioned the social sharing plugins. Do you guys have go-tos that you really love that you don't find? Because I've had the same problem. They're just so heavy so often. I like social warfare plugin. It's very lightweight. And I learned about it from Andrea Whitmer. Uh, she wrote a great blog post, I think last year is probably when I started using it. It's um, I have it on my website, JackieDelia.com. So I'm using it there. And I it's it's my pages load very quickly. I didn't see any uh, delays and any issues with that. It I believe it stores some of the accounts in the database so that it's not constantly polling all the time. So the numbers are updated, not um, immediately, which I think helps with the, the whole uh, page speed management. But it's very clean, very lightweight. You can also, the really nice thing about it is you can put your own Facebook images and your own Pinterest images in your post. So they're sized for Pinterest, which is great. Um, so you can have it all ready to go. So when somebody shares, it 
automatically gets the proper image to go with that platform. So it's like 20, I think it's $29 a year for the plugin per site. And to me, it's worth it. I like knowing that somebody's managing that and their job is to keep this as lean and light and clean as possible. Uh, and because it's a premium plugin, you know they're gonna keep doing that because if they stop, you're not gonna renew. So it's way better to me than the free plugins um, with that regard. And I, I was using a free plugin long, for a long time. And um, when I saw that article, it took me a little while before I decided to pull the trigger and do it, but I'm very happy that I did. Thank you. No, definitely. There's, uh, and I, I don't know what you use, Sally. Like, I mean, I when I do different builds, I mean, I, I guess I don't really have one go-to because um, I do, you know, different things for like other agencies. And so it'll kind of vary, um, you know, the ones that I've used that I like, I've used Social Warfare, find that one good. The, you know, if we have Jetpack installed, they'll just use the native Jetpack. Uh, there's another one that's just called Social and that one's not bad. Um, and I think there's like a Mashable type one that's okay. I used to use ShareBar a long time ago, but I went away from that like a long time ago too. Uh, Sally, you know, what What are your, do you have any go-to plugins or? Yeah, there, there are a couple. I like um, scriptless social sharing when you just need kind of the, mm -hmm. the basic obvious ones. And on some other sites I use um, WPSSO uh, which is like social sharing optimization, I think it stands for. And then they have a bunch of, of additions, one of which is the ridiculously responsive uh, uh, buttons. Uh, and you, know, you can get the, you know, you can get the floating one in addition to the placements. And it's, uh, it also will kind of pick your, uh, your images for your, your Facebook and your Twitter things. Some of it, some of it's available in the free version. Some of it, only comes in the in the paid version if if you need it. Yep, very good. I think we got one time for one more question on the regular podcast, um, and I'll start with uh, Kim. Um, what do you what do you say to people that you know maybe use their Facebook page more than they do their website, and they're using like their Facebook page for a de facto website? Um, <laughs> I actually don't have that. I have worse. I have a client who uses his Libsyn podcast page as his only website. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, with Facebook, of course, my message always with the Facebook pages, the Facebook groups, everything, because I, you know, teaching people how to build their own site, how to add a membership piece to it, how to add the online courseware to it. A lot of my messaging comes around of ownership. You know, who owns what, who has the opportunity to do what. If it's your platform, you own it. And my goal is always to train people. Yes, of course I want to interact with them on social media, but my long-term game really is to get them to my site, in my stuff, in my classes, engaging with me at my house, not at the bar again. So we're gonna go to that uh, image. So you need your own, you need your own platform. I, I just believe that. I think everything else can tie into that platform, can feed that platform, but you need your own platform, your own website, no matter how basic you want to start. You know, I think sometimes what happens with me with people, they're, uh, because I end up with the do-it-yourselfers, 
they're not ready to hire someone to build out a huge site. They are overwhelmed by how much it is. And my attitude with them is, look, let's get up a five-page site. We can do a five-page site in a day together. Get it up there. And now you've got something to build on. And just con instead of just continuing to say, well, I'm going to have a site. I'm going to have a site. I'm going to have a site. But for now, I'm going to keep playing in Facebook's line field um, and not building out my own platform, which is, you know, having your own platform makes you more professional. You know, people see that as more professional and gives you a chance really in the long run for your better online optimization and, and reputation. Yeah, definitely. Sally, any you know, thoughts on that, just uh, owning your platform? I, I do think owning your platform is, is important. I mean, this is part of what I'm planning to talk about at the WordCamp LAX is, you know, ownership. If ownership matters to you, that's, you know, that is a good reason to be using a self-hosted uh, WordPress site. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> Kim says she, she would have hated to bet the farm on Blab. Yeah, I mean, this happens to people is is you have a uh, um uh, you have a, a opportunity uh maybe to to cash in on the popularity of a of a platform and if you understand that that might be short term that the, you know these people could disappear on you and you're willing to take that chance fine but if it's going to be like oh you were planning your entire future to, you know, look what happened to all those developers when Twitter changed its uh, API and suddenly, you know, half of those things didn't work anymore. Uh, and it's, it's like that, you know, is, is that if you depend on Facebook or Twitter or Libsyn or, or anywhere, you know, as, as the focal point of your business, what happens when they change their rules and you, you know, and you can't do what, what you were doing. Uh, and, you know, there are some restrictions on, on you with a self-hosted site, but they're mostly like, you know, the law says you cannot use this site for X and, and, and Y, you know, or possibly your terms of service say, you know, you can only have so much traffic without paying more, or, you know, whatever. The, but, you know, the restrictions are far fewer and you can always, you know, you have the opportunity to keep your content yourself and, and you know, back it up and export it and save it and, and move it somewhere else. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great point, Jackie. Uh, many thoughts on owning your own platform. Oh, it's crucial. That is your hub for everything. Think of a wheel and a spokes and the hub, and your website needs to be the hub that extends out and in from everything so that if one of those spokes break off or disappear, like we were just saying, um, it doesn't affect the core. So you're, you need to own your core, and that's where all of your – curate that's where your original content is that's where everything that you're publishing is you can share it elsewhere but you need to have a place that you own not rent so renting is you know things can change later so if you're going to build your entire brand on a facebook page that's fine it may be fine right now and it may be fine for a couple of years you don't really know but you really have no control over your future there if you own your content you own where it is um, you have control over it and you can you can rework it whenever you need to. Nope. I, and I agree. Your website is the axle that turns the wheel and like all the social media stuff that's like spokes on the wheel. But 
it's, they will change over time as we've they seen. They do, they do change. So you, you, you know, you swap out, take advantage of, of those, or basically that's just basically going where your audience is. So if your audience is all hanging out on some new place, well, that's where you share your content, but you need to, like you were saying earlier, you want to publish it and copyright it and have it be in your site first. So that's yep. the source of everything. Yep. Uh, it, that's an excellent way to end uh, our regular podcast. You know, definitely like own your own platform. Um, realize that social media is an ever shifting thing. Uh, everybody has you know different platforms, but you're bound to their rules. It's but your website you own. Uh, social media is the garnish. It's the sizzle, not the steak. Um, so, panel, uh, how can we get a hold of you, Kim? How do, how do people find you? You can find me at howtobuildanonlinecourse.com or whitegloveweb-training.com and on Twitter at Kim Schivler. Sally, how do we find you? On Twitter and many other places, I am at Sally Getch. On most other places, uh, uh, I am WP Fangirl and WPFangirl.com will get you to my main website, which does have my other contact information. Very good. Jackie, how do we get a hold of you? You can find me at JackieDelia.com is my website. I'm on Twitter at JDelia, and I'm also um, hosting Rethink.fm, uh, my podcast. Yes, definitely. Yeah, subscribe to that one. And while you're subscribing to Rethink.fm, also subscribe to ours. Leave us uh, you know, a review on iTunes. Definitely check out Jackie's as well. Uh, we definitely appreciate that. Just look around on iTunes, WP Tonic. You can find me. I'm John Locke. You can find me at my website, which is LockdownDesign.com. You can find my co-host, Jonathan Denwood, at WP-Tonic.com. And his Twitter handle is Jonathan Denwood, at Jonathan Denwood. Uh, and be sure to tune in to our website for the bonus content that continues after the podcast. We usually go for about 15 or 20 minutes with bonus content available uh at WPTonic.com, uh, WP-Tonic.com. And with that, I will say adieu.